Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Rain Race Podcast. Uh, yeah, after about two months, we're finally back with some brand new episodes. We have Bob Varsha joining us again for a special Lamar preview episode. We're going to go over the qualifying results from the Wednesday session, as well as discussing some of the news that has come out over this week. If you're new to the podcast, you can check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. All the links will be in the description below. You can just check us out on any one of those. You can also check us out on at Rain Race Podcast on Twitter. Other than that, sit back and I hope you enjoy this episode. Episode 4 of the Rain Race Podcast here today. Uh, we're here for a Lama preview episode. And, of course, I'm not alone. I'm joined alongside Kyle Cuthbertson. Hello. David Land. Hi. Missing Kevin Rollins. <laughs> That's so, super funny to me, the fact that Kyle was gone for the IndyCar preview. Kevin's gone for the Lamont preview. But you know what? It's all right, because we pulled in the backup right here. Uh, joining us again for the second time this season, Bob Varsha. Put me in the game, coach. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you seem pretty qualified to talk about Lamar. What? How many years did you commentate this race in the United States? Oh, boy. Well, it kind of came and went based on other responsibilities, but I went for the first time um, around 1989, and uh, most years since, but not every year. And, of course, back in the old days, we used to actually go to Lamar for the race, but it reached a point in more recent years where we'd go to Lamont and talk to everybody and gather our information, then fly back to the United States and sit in a studio and call the race, which was kind of weird. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a part of my life pretty much since the beginning of my career. I started with sports cars in the old IMSA Camel GT series and, and then went on the world stage when ESPN was covering everything that rolled. And, um, gosh, I'd have to total it up sometime. I've been to it maybe 20 times. It's more than I can say. So more than any of us can say. Uh, it's my favorite race in the world, and I always encourage people to go. Yeah, well, that's why you're here. There are a couple of things I want to talk about, but first off, I do want to say this is going up, at least expected to be going up, without any complications on Friday morning here on the eastern part of the United States, and we're recording it on Thursday morning, which means that we haven't seen any news that's come out past this and we also haven't seen the second and third qualifying sessions so we're going to be discussing some qualifying times here but i don't want to spend way too much time on it because obviously it's all subject to change tonight but yeah leading on to qualifying times here the fastest time yesterday was set you know for lack of surprise by the number seven toyota with a 317.161 it's about two seconds slower than they were uh, last year for the pole time by the number eight car, I believe it was on pole last year. The part that is semi-surprising, though, is where the privateers came into all of this because SMP was able to set a 317.633 yesterday, and I don't know if you can do the quick math in your head, but that's less than five-tenths or half a second. Um, and the thing that people are really seeming to note as of late is how quick the SMP seems to be on a straight line. Um... Because I know Stoffel Van Dorn in the test day was the first driver in WEC history, I say WEC, that means from 2012 onwards, to get a car above 350 kilometers per hour, or about 218 miles an hour, um, on the Molson Strait. And then just going down a couple more cars, we had Rebellion, the number three car, uh, with a 319.603, and the Toyota number eight actually came in fourth with a 319.632. Uh, a little bit surprising to see the number 8 car off pace, but obviously I kind of expect that to come tumbling down uh, for these sessions on Thursday night tonight. Well, I would just add, Fernando Alonso said traffic is what affected the Toyota number 8 more than anything else, so whether that's true or not. It is a surprise to see them down in fourth place after that first session, given the, uh, the allowances for the only hybrid cars in the field. They'll still get their one lap, advantage over the rest of the uh, LMP1 cars in the race, which is huge. But yeah, I'm surprised that the uh, the other LMP1 cars have gotten so close. And as you point out, top speed is a big part of the reason. Yeah, it's also going to be interesting to see how they fare out in traffic. Uh, because in the past, there have been some WEC races this season 
where the privateers are right on pace. I think the closest they've gotten all season in qualifying was around two tenths. I want to say back at Fuji or Shanghai, uh, one of those races. And in the race, the hybrids absolutely dominated them. It's, I mean, it comes down to obviously mistakes that the privateers made in the race, but also you have to remember how much better the hybrids are in traffic. They get stuck behind a car. They just hit the old boost button. Hybrid boost shoots a thousand horsepower and they can rocket right by them. The privateer cars are all non-hybrid, so they kind of have what they have. You know, you can't really press that magical boost button uh, mm-hmm. shoot by those those uh, slower GT or LMP2 cars. So I think over the stint of a race, we're still going to be expecting to see a Toyota out front, obviously. I know you mentioned that one-lap advantage, and the one thing that always comes to mind for me is 2011 Le Mans. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, but when Peugeot had a one-lap advantage on fuel over Audi. So what mm-hmm. Audi ended up doing is they were doing quadruple, maybe, I think they did five stints in the morning, uh, even on one set of tires before changing them, whereas yeah. Peugeot was doing triple stints the entire race, and that's what uh, what gave Audi the, the win in the end. So I'd be curious yeah. to see if any of the privateers are going to try to pull some of that. I know five stints are banned nowadays, but, uh, but maybe a quadruple stint while Toyota's doing three. It's kind of a stretch for a small privateer team, but it's not unprecedented. Well, that's going to, of course, depend on the tires. Um, but the, the other LMP1 cars, the non-hybrids, are going to be limited to 10-lap stints. And the Toyota is going to get 11 laps. And so you can do the math. You do 36 pit stops during the course of the race. That's a 36-lap advantage. You could save potentially three pit stops. My numbers are correct. And, and that's enormous because the secret to Le Mans, like any endurance race, is staying out of the pit lane for whatever reason. And Audi pioneered, you know, modular repair kits and things like that to get cars out of the pits as soon as possible. And uh, I think given the fact that the other non-hybrid LMP1s are so close on performance or on lap time to the, uh, to the Toyotas, the critical element in this race is likely to be, you know, as always, who stays out of the pits. Yeah, I think it comes down to that, and obviously it comes down to reliability. Other than last year, Toyota's had pretty tough luck with reliability at Le Mans. Boy. Um, so I'd be curious. The, the one thing I've been wondering this week is with the increased pace of the privateers, if Toyota's having to slightly dial it up a little bit from where they were last year. I mean, I know that car is, <clears throat> what is it, four years old now? Because it started running in 16. So yeah, this is its fourth 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, I'm sure they have all the sort of the teething issues sorted out in that car, but if you do have to dial it up, you never know what can happen. Um, and if anything mm. should happen to both cars, either one gets in a, a crash and the other has any mechanical issue. I mean, the race could fall into the hands of the privateers and the privateers all look pretty close to each other. So, mm-hmm. And that pit stop stint length will be uh, interesting to watch in the GTE pro ranks too, because last year, they were limited to 14 laps, and everybody felt that was a huge advantage for Porsche because those cars were nowhere near as thirsty as uh, their rivals in that big class. So right now, a lot of teams are going to be tempted to try to squeeze a 15th lap out. Pretty much everybody does 14 laps, but if you get yellow flags and full course yellows, and they're going to use a virtual safety car at Le Mans for the first time this year, you know, people might be tempted to try to squeeze out another lap. And with an eight and a half mile lap, um, that can be a really good thing if you can do it or a real disaster if you get your calculations wrong. So it'll be fun to see if uh, if fuel strategy comes into play as we think it will in this year's race. Well, I was just going to say, I think, of course, as Bob mentioned, over the course of a race, and we've seen this in the past as well. I mean, we go back 10 years to where you had the diesels versus the petrol-powered cars. A lot of times when you've got a team, even if it's close, you know you can get the, the, the hybrid cars and the non-hybrid cars as close as you want to get them. The problem is Toyota is the most well-prepared team. They're the most well-funded team. And generally speaking, like Bob said, unless there's going to be a disaster – that team is going to win the race. Even if it's just one car finishing, the chances of two Toyotas falling out of this race are are very uh, slim, I would say. 
Yeah, I would agree. And uh, yeah, I think the numbers we're going to see in on the final grid are going to be quite a bit quicker. I mean, the 07 car that wound up on provisional pole set that quick time and then crashed, as did, in fact, it crashed with the leader in the uh, LMP2 category, which was really bizarre. But I don't think we saw everything Toyota had out there. I think the seven car could have gone quicker. Alonzo certainly implied that the eight car could have gone quicker, but for traffic. So it'll be interesting to see. We may get less traffic on the circuit as teams, you know, just give up the quest for pole, figure they've got their setup, don't want to bend their race cars. So they head for the garage well before the final qualifying session is complete. Yeah, well, here's the thing is I fully expect a Toyota on pole because what they can do in qualifying is they can just spend an entire lap regenerating all the hybrid boost and then just crank it up to a hot lap or party mode and mm -hmm. uh, and deploy it all on one lap. So I fully expect them to be on pole just strictly for that reason. Obviously, they can't run that type of setup in the race, so the, the deficit shouldn't be as large in the race. Uh, but, yeah, I will be really curious to see what the uh, Toyota is setting uh, by the end of the Thursday evening sessions. I'll make a Kevin joke here real quick. Uh, maybe uh, the privateer P1 cars will be closer this year than last year, at least on lap one, because hopefully Andre Lauderer won't decide to play bowling pins with all the privateer LMP1 cars oh. and crash them all out <laughs> at the first corner and kind of eliminate any possibility of any kind of competition throughout the entire 24 hours, <laughs> like happened last year. Um, just a couple more things to add to qualifying before we move on to the actual news part of this episode. Rebellion's team manager, Bart Hayden, suggested to SportsCar 365 that a 317 is possible for them, obviously. I said earlier they're down uh, in the 319s right now, uh, and the one car actually had its best lap deleted yesterday, so they're uh, well down the order right now. Um, uh, but the fastest non-hybrid we saw in 2018 was, in, in qualifying at least, was a 319.449, uh, which was the number one rebellion. And this year we're already seeing almost two seconds quicker by the number 17 SMP. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to top that tonight, but I saw a 1.8 second advantage already. So, you know, I, I try to think positive about everything. I think that a 1.8 second gap is quite a bit. Obviously the privateers were just way off pace last year i mean to a not an unprecedented amount but to an insane amount um so i'd be curious to see where that pulls them for the race uh i think the target set by the aco originally was half a second per lap well that didn't work and, and now they're trying to equal them completely and now we're getting what probably only about a second off pace maybe race pace so I don't know. It's a little bit closer than it was last year. I'm still holding decent hopes that we can get some competition in the race, especially if something happens to the Toyotas, but uh, but that's just me on, on my own personal level. <laughs> I think there's a lot of politicking going on in all these quotes we read on the internet. Hayden is saying, you know, maybe we can do a 317, but that's it. Probably yeah. trying to calm Toyota's fears, and Toyota you know, got to a 317, and we we know they they are probably going to go quicker. So, yeah, I agree with what's been said already. I think it's likely to be a, a, a Toyota front row lockout. Why should Le Mans be any different than anywhere else we see in the WEC? Um, but, again, you know, race the race itself is going to be an entirely different matter. And uh, even if there is a substantial gap between the Toyotas and the, and the rest of the LMP1s, um, Stranger things have happened, certainly to Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but moving on to another class quickly here, LMP2. Uh, the one thing I wanted to note is how surprised I was to see the United Autosports number 22 Ligier so far up the order, at least after Q1. They were third um, with just two Oricas in front of them. You already mentioned earlier the 31 Dragon Speed uh, and the Signatech. Um I'm not sure if they're going to be able to hold that pace. You know, that seems to be the trend of this episode right now because, like I said earlier, we haven't seen the second and third sessions and anybody listening listening to this uh, would have had the opportunity to. Um, but I do think that that's kind of noteworthy out of the first qualifying session is to see a Ligier uh, third on the order. Because right now, I mean, that last year, in pretty much 
every WEC race, the Orica seemed to be the dominant <laughs> manufacturer for LMP2. In GTE Pro, uh, it was actually the 67 Ford that set the fastest lap at the very end of the session, 349.530, followed by the 93 Porsche and the 97 Aston Martin. Uh, nice to see Aston Martin putting up some good times after they were pretty much nowhere last year. Um, mm -hmm. But it was actually Garcia, Antonio Garcia, for the 63. I almost said number three. It's not IMSA. Uh, for the 63 Corvette mm -hmm. that put down the fastest lap, a 349.467. Uh, but that was disallowed because they improved under yellow flag conditions. I mean, Garcia said it himself, rules are rules, and now they're sitting down in 11th place. Uh, so kind of a shame for that team. They could have been on provisional pole, now sitting way down in 11th, and I think the sister car is 13th at the moment. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, GTM, uh, a Porsche top three sweep uh, in qualifying session one at least with the 88 Dempsey Proton Porsche, the 56 Project 1, and the 77 Dempsey Proton Porsche all uh, locking out those top three spots for now. And they are awfully close, though, in GTEM, and it's, I think it's the best driver lineup we've seen in that class for a long time, even given the fact you have to have bronze and silver-rated drivers out there. Well, when you've got a great customer program like Porsche does, it's no surprise to see 10 cars in the field, such as we have this year. I mean, one-sixth of the field is Porsches. I mean, it sounds like the 80s all over again. Um, yeah. We'll see what happens with the, with the Crone team. Dempsey Proton, Tracy Crone had that huge crash in the opening couple of hours of practice. Apparently, he is healthy and will drive. Quick cut in while I'm doing post-production here. Uh, this comment aged well. But they have to build up a completely new car for him, Nick Johnson and Patrick Long. Yeah, they're prepping a brand new car for that one. I think also noteworthy is the 85, the first privateer entered for GT ever uh, by Ben Keating way down the order in 16th at the end of the first session. They're the slowest running car because the uh, Tracy Crone Dempsey Proton Porsche that crashed in free practice, they didn't get any chance to run. Uh, but the Keating Ford was actually the slowest car that had an opportunity to run way down at a 356.5. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We always talk about BOP and uh, kind of the ACO favoring cars or maybe not favoring cars it always this one surprises me that the ford has not gotten the bop breaks because you would think they would want a privateer ford gt to look like an attractive option for next year's uh, season uh, to try to keep that car in the mix keep it showing up to the races right now if this is an audition for other teams to maybe think about running that car next year it's certainly not looking encouraging when you're 61st overall. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, ben Keating, who owns the car, has been complaining that the BOP, as you say, or the ACO version, which is the EOT, the equivalence of technology, that they've cut the power back on that Ford GT, which implies that they could be a lot quicker if they just were allowed to use a little bit more power. And the curious thing this year to me is that you've got a lot of a lot of those GTE AM cars, which traditionally have to use year-old technology, are actually using virtually the same technology as their GTE Pro brothers because Porsche, for example, introduced their new 911 RSR last year. So it is a year-old car, even though the technology between the Pro and the AM versions hasn't changed much at all. Uh, so I'm surprised, as you say, that the, uh, that the Keating Ford GT is uh, as far off the pace as it is because it's essentially the same car that the pro teams are using. Can I just go back quickly here? And I, I never thought I'd come to a point in my life watching you on TV all these years that I'd, uh, I'd have a moment to correct you on something. But uh, <laughs> Please. That's <laughs> um, what I always tell my TV colleagues. Yeah. The uh, equivalence of technology is for LMP1 where it's, sort of trying to equalize it used to be all about equalizing petrol versus diesel where they have you know a massive difference in how much fuel they're using nowadays it's more in terms of balancing the hybrids and the privateers where it's you know they're not just worrying about fuel tank they're also worrying about power and and uh, how much fuel you can use per lap and everything but it still yeah. retains the same 
principle where it's balancing the formula rather than each individual car. So the GTE classes still have balance of performance because they're balanced uh, to each other's car, not to the formula. So, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But I mean, the concept is the same. They're yeah. trying to equalize performance throughout the field. Yeah. Whether it's weight or fuel usage or refill rate or stint lengths or whatever it might happen to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's a good point. They do treat the LMPs different than the GTs. Yeah. All right. I'm going to move this on to sort of the news segment of this. Um, got a couple things to talk about here. And I know we were talking quite a bit before this episode even started. Uh, but we have some some good discussion to go on here. First thing I want to bring up, uh, news that came out just earlier this morning, uh, at least Thursday when we're recording it. Um, Zach Brown, obviously CEO of McLaren, uh, in the news quite a bit recently for reasons uh, that shall or shall not be known, uh, is in attendance at Le Mans this weekend with United. Obviously, he's the owner of that or co-owner of that team. Uh, and he's gone on the record to say, in quotes, we are seriously looking at bringing McLaren back to endurance racing. We like the look of the new rules, and we are considering taking part in the next World Endurance Championship in 2020 uh, and 21, which is interesting because the next one's 2019-2020. But uh, Take that with a grain of salt, though. Correct Zach on that. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Um, because the, the announcement he said where he's, he said, you know, keep your eyes posted, it... It's McLaren, so I feel like everything they've said in the past year, I've been like, oh, okay, well, I'll believe it when I see it because obviously the whole, the whole IndyCar yes. tobacco that they had, you know, front and back when they were like, okay, we're gonna be coming to IndyCar. You know, they never outright said it, but they were hinting. Full time, and, no time. And David here started a whole not. a whole Fred watch over it, and then he didn't even make the one race he actually competed it in, so. So, it was a great story, to... though, wasn't it? It was a great story, but I'm just saying i got to take it with a grain of salt because I remember watching all your videos, and you're like, oh, they're coming full-time. You started a whole Fred Watch well, thing. Well, let me... Do, <laughs> least... do, you want me, do you want me to rant about that? Because here's the thing. If you want to make, <laughs> and certainly if you want to win the Indy 500, you should at least enter some of the races beforehand so your team actually knows what to do in an IndyCar race. But anyway. Yeah. Hey, I want to do an IndyCar episode recapping Oh, I'd love to do that, but I mean, yeah, we kind of ran out of time for the month of May. I should have said yeah, it at the beginning of the we, episode. We, we can ramble about that like a week from now. Been gone for a while, but yeah, <laughs> between the month of May and a, an episode that that uh, sort of fell between the cracks, we've just been gone for a little while, but we do plan on being back, don't you? Worry well, well, here, here, here's. Let me get us back on subject here, Chris, because yeah. I think it ties into Zach Brown and the way he talks about things and the way he promises things. It's it's actually ironic that he is talking about the hypercar regulations because it seems like hypercar regulations and Zach Brown talking about entering a series, they're birds of a feather because we have no idea if they're actually going to happen. And if they do end up happening, are they actually going to be successful? Because this is just seems like to be the biggest uh, like story that just keeps ha- coming and it's like uh, the more that comes out about it, the the worse it seems to be getting. It's just I, I do not understand why it's taking them this long to come up with regulations that work for anybody in in the top category, whatever it's going to be moving forward. Well, that too, but I think it's also the whole Zach Brown thing. It's not it's not Zach Brown's decision like it. So every time he comes and says something, you just have to take it with a grain of salt because we have no idea what the people at McLaren are doing. Well, it's, it's the the team is run by a boardroom now. That's part yeah, of the problem. That's, that's the part problem. of the reason why that car was that in the paint the shop is because they have to please. Yes. Two things I want to bring up here. First, to your point, David, uh, when you said the hypercar regulations are all over the place, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think what happened with the WEC is LMP1 obviously collapsed. Porsche left in 17, Audi in 16, and now they're left with Toyota and a couple of privateers. Right now, I think that they're just in desperate need for new regulations. Now, the thing that everybody seemed to have been shouting forever uh, was DPI to Lamar. we got to have yes. DPI go to Lamar. Um, while I'm not against that, I think that it's it looks better on the surface than it actually would be, uh, especially because IMSA's already planning on replacing that. Uh, that whole class within uh, the next few years. I can't remember the exact year. I want to say 2022, I think. Uh, they were planning a complete 
uh, refresh of that class. So I don't think from a an actual series standpoint, it would be the greatest decision to just do that right now. Well, here here's another problem that just as a purist, I have a problem with DPI being the top class at Lamar is that we just discussed the difference between EOT and BOP. EOT, of course, is an equivalency formula. In my opinion, that is much more pure than BOP because, again, you're saying build the best car, even if it's specifically we have different regulations in one class, meaning if you build a hybrid car, you get X, Y, and Z, and if you get uh, you know, if you build a non-hybrid, you get A, B, and C. As long as those cars are pref- theoretically the top the best car in each of those divisions can perform at the same level. That's awesome. Obviously, they haven't been able to do that. The problem with BOP is it almost turns into uh, something where if one team performs, we saw this with the Cadillacs a couple of years ago in DPI, where you had the Wayne Taylor team was just head and shoulders above everybody else, and it was plainly obvious that they would win every race regardless of the BOP adjustments, which kept getting worse and worse and worse for the Cadillacs. And all it did was just bring the other Cadillac teams down rather than, I think, achieve uh, IMSA's goal at the time, which was to keep Wayne Taylor from winning all the races, which mm-hmm. which didn't happen. And so I, I would worry, because we see it so much in the GT divisions now, with the politicking before the race, it almost seems like the race more often than not in the GT divisions, despite the fact that you have all these manufacturers there, it's determined in a boardroom before the race even begins. Like Bob mentioned earlier, Porsche had the advantage last year with the fuel strategy. Uh, The year before, a couple years before, you had Ford and Ferrari that were just way ahead of everybody else. Uh, it's, it's, It's frustrating because, sure, you can get all those manufacturers in, but if you only have one car that is competitive despite having five or six manufacturers, you you haven't improved anything over where we are now where you just have one manufacturer in Toyota that blows everybody away. At least it's a legitimate competition where you've got uh, Toyota and S&P and everybody trying to build the best car to bring to Le Mans. That's my opinion of it. And so that's what I would worry about if they did bring uh, DPI to Le Mans. Yeah, well, I... I think everyone's in a tough position right now because WEC wants a new formula by the 2020-21 season. IMSA is waiting on this DPI 2.0, as it's put in quotes right now, uh, for 2022, yeah. like I said. So I think having them wait around, it would be another four years, four seasons before they can implement, uh, yeah, four seasons before they'd even be able to implement the uh, the new range of DPI cars. And also... There's no set-in-stone backing right now on that class, and that's kind of the next point I was going to bring up, um, where a lot of people were very skeptical for a while. Like, why, why, is, why are they continuing to push these hypercars? Why are they bending over backwards to all these manufacturers um, with seemingly still no committed entrance? Um, and I myself started to wonder that. I was like, okay, well, what... What are we doing here if you're just going to completely bend the rules left and right and then, um, or bend the regulations, I should say, uh, and then you still have no committed manufacturers? From what I've read so far, and this is going up on Friday, um, uh, Aston Martin and Toyota are expected to be making announcements, uh, sort of formally announcing those programs within the week. So I'd assume it would either be today, Thursday, uh, or Friday. Um, in which case, I think that it makes sense that the WEC was sticking uh, to the hypercar program the whole time, even though all the critics seem to go against them. Um, you know, if you have Toyota already building a car, that's one step above saying, all right, we're going to wait around for another four seasons and then see if we can have common regulations with IMSA. Now, I, from the start, was you know a huge advocate for common regulations, I think nowadays in sports car racing where it's sort of, number one, it's expensive, like we said earlier, to develop cars for this. Uh, We see a lot of teams uh, from the likes of Audi, Porsche, Mercedes, uh, they're all going to Formula E, which, Bob, you're obviously very familiar with Formula E. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that if you had common regulations, you're giving more incentive uh, to some of these manufacturers to say, hey, look, we want to build a car. We want to bring it to these races. Uh, because you have one car that you can race in IMSA. You can race it 
uh, in WEC. And I think that's kind of the beauty of GTE right now. Uh, I mean, of course, GTE is starting to have their own issues with Ford leaving and BMW uh, leaving WEC. Um, but I feel like that's sort of a known beauty between uh, the series is that GTE is a compatible formula for both of them. Uh, so I, for one, really wish that they could have done a similar thing with prototypes, but of course, uh, just didn't seem to be able to line up. Well, yeah, management comes into play here. You know, you <clears throat> all of these series, and I'm speaking as a guy who never organized a series, uh, you, the rules get written by going to your potential customers, meaning the manufacturers, and saying, you know, what rules would you like in order for you to commit to come race with us? And, you know, that that's a big factor, I think, in how the rules get done. Certainly all the folks at IMSA are constantly talking about the the great relationship they have with their manufacturers and how they consult them on everything and so forth. Yeah, the ideal would be a worldwide series, much as um, as the GT3 car platform has become. You can race a GT3 car in any number of series around the world. And uh, the folks at the uh, Stefan Rattel organization have turned that into a massive business worldwide. And I don't see why you couldn't do the same with prototypes if you can agree on what the rules need to be. IMSA, being very cognizant of its manufacturers' desires to have cars that are distinctly theirs and that they can sell as being theirs from nose to tail in terms of all the technology, uh, is a very different approach than what the ACO does with the with its handmaiden, the WEC. I mean, they they design rules around a goal that they want to have in terms of how the racing world should be and then invite everybody to come along. I have to believe they consult with somebody before they put these rules into place, but it's very much a back and forth kind of process and, and fascinating in its own way, which is why I'm watching the hypercar situation pretty closely to see how the rules bend a little bit. I mean, just recently, Toyota, who thought it was going to, the hypercars were going to be hybrid only, are now admitting that they they're going to have to accept non-hybrid cars in any hypercar set of rules because otherwise you don't have as many cars as you want out there. So it's um, you know the the day to day reality of putting together a rule book for these series, particularly at the sharp end of technology, hypercars, DPIs, LMP1 prototypes. You know, it, it, it's all great, but, um, you know, if, if nobody's willing to play, then you have to find a set of rules that they're willing to play by. Well, Bob, I'd like you to give some historical perspective here, because I'm trying to think in my mind how many times truly the American sports car series has actually been truly compatible with the world sports car championship. And, I, and I'm just trying to think, because I know in the 80s they had an IMSA-specific class, but there weren't a whole lot of takers. Obviously, you could also run Group C cars here. Uh, and then in the 90s, there was some crossover. Um, but the problem was, in the 90s, the GT1 cars were so much better, and the GT1 cars never seemed to race in the United States, very rarely, in fact. So, I mean, how many times in history have you actually been able to run in an American championship, an LMP1, and then come over to Le Mans and actually be able to compete for a win? I mean, I, I'm trying to think, and it's not very often. Yeah, you probably have to go all the way back to the Cobras in the, in the 60s and 70s. The, um, well, here's the thing, in my view. You know, sports car racing has always relied on the deep-pocketed, enthusiasts it's it's not sure the glory days have been the manufacturers all piling in and ford versus ferrari and so on but traditionally from top to bottom going down to the grassroots level it's it's not about manufacturers in sports car racing it's always been about guys who can put the money together and hire a hot shoe driver and go out and race car count is all important to sports car racing and if you come up with a set of rules that takes you know the equivalent of a small country's gross domestic product to put on the racetrack you're not going to have many takers so it not only has to be an exciting formula it has to be financially viable it has to be a good business deal for all of the teams and there are many many of them out there who are businesses they build cars and sell seats we see this all the time in sports car racing 
which is why I've always thought it's kind of ironic that people, you know, bitch and moan about you know, rental rides and pay drivers. Well, that's what sports car racing has based itself on since the very beginning. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of wandering around within the limits of your question. But, you know, it, I think this focus on the manufacturers who come and go as their marketing departments demand has, has never really worked for sports car racing. Uh, and I think a lot of the problems they've had in terms of putting rule books together, having successful races, formulating big car count uh, has been because they cater perhaps too much to the manufacturers. The whole deal with BMW and Ford leaving the, the factory level of GTE Pro is going to be interesting because if those cars are going to be made available, and it certainly sounds like they are, It'll be interesting to see who snaps them up and how many we see on the grids in the future. Because, you know, that's, Porsche was not kidding around when they developed customer 911s and customer 956s and 962s that were every bit as good as the cars the factory pro drivers were driving. And that, that was a big secret to their success over the years. So I think other manufacturers would be wise to, to look at the lessons of history if they really care about what happens with the sports car racing platform worldwide. I feel like it's, it's kind of funny um, that this entire episode, and I'm not saying that we're wrong, um, saying that Toyota has a huge advantage because it's really not unprecedented uh, in the past. I know like thinking back to 2005, 2000, well, actually not 2005 because Audi wasn't factory backed uh, that year, but 2006, especially before Peugeot joined back, um, it was just Audi on a track with a ton of privateers, and they won by, I can't remember the exact number, but it was 10-plus laps that year. Another post-production cutaway here, uh, Pescarello actually finished four laps down that year in a petrol-powered car. Just figured I'd correct myself before somebody else does. Um, just absolutely dominated the race. And mm -hmm. back then, the privateers weren't even close. I mean, I think you'd have like four or five seconds between them in qualifying. And nowadays we look at two seconds, you know, a two or three second gap in qualifying between the hybrids and privateers. And we think, oh, that's a lot, you know. That's just something, why am I even watching now? Uh, if it's going to be a gap <laughs> that large. Uh, I feel like in the past few years, you know, 2015, we had, you know, Toyota, Porsche, Audi, Nissan, even though they weren't quite there on a competitive level, um, I think we got kind of spoiled in recent years. Just sort of, we expect a standard now of of uh, close racing. I know John Heintal, the uh, Le Mans legend commentator, uh, has said over the years that it's really turned into a 24-hour sprint race in terms of the racing that we've come to expect. Whereas right. even, you know, you don't have to look back that far. 10, 20 years ago, it was still more about the reliability aspect. And yeah, it still plays a huge part in the race, but... But nowadays, I feel like a lot of people just have hugely high standards um, for the close level of racing that we should expect in a top class like LMP1 at Le Mans. Well, well here's the thing that, that you mentioned. You mentioned reliability. I think the difference between the debut of the R10, which you're talking about in 2006, versus what we have now with Toyota and a bunch of privateers is that there was a question in 2006. Would the diesels make the finish? They did. We know the Toyota can make it 24 hours. They won it last year. So that eliminates a lot of that intrigue that maybe we had two years ago when Toyota and Porsche were pushing themselves so hard that they both broke each other. And then it was who can unlap themselves first from the LMP2 field and win this race. That was an exciting race because of that reliability element. But now you've got a situation where Toyota... I mean, it, there's a possibility that they could be pressured by SMP. I don't believe they will be. But uh, I don't think you're going to have that fear that the Toyotas aren't going to make it because we now know that they can make it. Yeah, I think sort of noting what you said um, back in like really the, the early, right after Porsche joined, I'd say in 2014, Audi especially seemed to enter this state where they would pretty much go full F1 and they develop an entirely new car, new looking, new aerodynamics, new hybrid system almost every single season. Um, and that's where the cost really spiraled out of control. 
Um, but that was an exciting aspect because when they show up to Le Mans every single year with a new car back in 15, 16, uh, that's when reliability was still a major question. Nowadays, when you have the TS050 on its fourth time showing up at Le Mans, I really, like you said, you can't really count on those reliability issues. You kind of just have it as a given uh, that they can make it to the end. They've proved it before. So it takes out that aspect in a large sense. So now you look at how close is the racing going to be, and it's it's not quite there. So, <laughs> You know, I laugh as we talk about this. Criticizing racing is its own little cottage industry these days. <laughs> and, and as you're saying, we tend to forget. I mean, you just referenced 2014, 2015, as opposed to nowadays, in 2019. I mean, the Grand Marshal for this year's 24 hours is Hurley Haywood. He once won the Rolex 24 at Daytona by like 25 laps, 40 laps, something like that. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you'd lose a third, almost as much as half the field in a, in a race due to reliability concerns. And yes, they have gotten much more reliable. Um, I don't know. I, and it, we just, we, it all depends on what we want out of our racing. Do you want sheer spectacle? Then there's very little that compares with the 24 hours of Le Mans or the Indy 500. Do you want real close racing? Well, you know, over 24 hours, you're not perhaps going to see a whole lot of that unless you have a rules package that allows the technology to be developed on a big enough field size that, you know, that cars can run together. I mean, all of these various factors that create the kind of thrill that we expect from motorsports, whether it's the closeness of the racing or the or the technological ragged edge of the cars or the superstar celebrities that drive them or whatever it might happen to be. It's a it's kind of a moving target because everybody has their own opinion of what it takes to make a great show in a motor race. Um, and the rule book is only one part of that. Well, here's the thing, really, for me, this is on a personal level, but I still love and respect LMP1 for what it is, especially back, yeah. and I keep going back to this, but like 2015, I think, was one of the greatest racing classes we've seen in any series, um, probably ever since, you know, the turn of the millennium in 2000, um, mm -hmm. because you'd have, they didn't really have any strict BOP, the only balancing they had was between the amount of fuel that a diesel and a petrol-powered car can use. And to see the amount of close racing we still had, 2015 just goes down for me as a classic Le Mans because of how close Porsche and Audi were the entire race. And there's no, pretty much no political drama to it. There's no, uh, we're going to balance these cars or, oh, these these guys have a, a poor, I mean, we're not talking BOP for LMP1, but these guys kind of get the, the short end of the stick with the, the balancing. Uh, it was just really good, pure racing. And I, in a way, I still kind of see that nowadays and i still really love the diversity in lmp1 uh with the privateers last year i liked it a little bit more because we had uh a little bit more diversity with the engines with mechachrome and uh and nismo which are both gone now um but i i still respect it for what it is and that's the thing is i can sacrifice this real need for close door-to-door -door action uh, if the racing is diverse and if they don't try too hard uh, to balance the cars. I feel like once you try too hard to balance the cars and you make it extremely political, like we're seeing in the GTE classes nowadays, it sort of takes away uh, from the purity of the class itself. Well, you put your finger on a on another great element in this whole equation of what makes for great racing. Do you want diversity? Dan Gurney always used to talk about how we need more innovation, we need more new ideas, we need you know great breakthroughs, we need the challenge. But, you know, the downside of that is you get somebody who comes up with the, uh, you know, the double diffuser or a similar technology that allows you to wipe up the floor with everybody else. And now you're going to have the folks who want close racing, you know, bitching and moaning. But if you get the close racing by making a spec series where everybody has the same equipment, so the cars are all going to run together, then people are complaining because they're not seeing the technological innovation that they want to see out of motorsports so you see you, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna please everybody so we've got to kind of enjoy what we've got and keep you know looking for the best in the in, in what's about to come so just wrapping up this discussion on the hypercars we've been on it for quite a while uh the last thing i want to add is that uh they're planning right now for the new class to utilize a balance of performance system where all the cars are balanced to each other rather than 
the current equals or equivalence of technology uh, where they're just trying to equalize the formulas. Um, I mean, I know we talked about this a lot already. I I see that kind of as a loss, honestly. I I really liked seeing teams had have to innovate uh, to really pull the uh, pull the pace back up if they were missing it. And I feel like that's what BOP kind of kills a lot is they kill a lot of the innovation because like okay, well if we're slow, they'll just give us more power. They'll just take a little bit of weight away. So. I mean, in a way, I see why they're doing it. It keeps costs down, and that seems to be the name of the game right now. Um, but yeah, that's just me personally. I would have preferred to have seen the the innovation that comes with an equivalence formula where you're just balancing the, the formulas themselves rather than the cars individually. Moving on here, um, just a couple more things to go over. The first thing really quick... Uh, is that Bart Hayden, I already mentioned him earlier, the Rebellion team principal, has confirmed to SportsCar 365 uh, that they will be returning to the 2019-2020 WE season with a planned two-car LMP1 program uh, with the same car that they have right now, the R13. Uh, and the driver lineups are the, pretty much the only thing uh, that we can really expect to change because Neil Yanni is going to Porsche in Formula E, and Thomas Laurent in the number three car is also departing. Uh, I didn't actually catch where he's going. Um, I think but, one of the manufacturers is going to pick up Laurent. I think. Oh, you uh, know what? I think it. I think it was. Uh, I think he was the one that got picked up by Toyota as a. I think so. As a test driver, yeah. Yeah, um, probably somebody's got to replace. Uh, well, they're going to use Brendan Hartley to yeah. replace Fernando Alonso, and I wouldn't be surprised if Laurent is somewhere in that pipeline too. Yeah, I think you saw he's going to Toyota as a sort of development driver role. Mm. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they pick up. Also, possibly Andre Lauder might be departing from the team. Um, not too sure yet. We're going to have to see what time tells. And then last two things to go over here. We already talked about this a little bit before the episode, but Goodyear. Uh, announced sort of out of the blue that they will be returning to international sports car racing with a new range of LMP tires. And I found that kind of interesting because in the official WEC article that was published, it said specifically Lamar prototype tires. So I don't know if that was sort of like a, you know, a misinterpretation or if they're only planning on returning uh, to the prototype divisions. Uh, but I'm surprised that we're not going to see the option for some GT manufacturers to run Goodyear tires if they wanted to. I might just be uh, misreading that or somebody might have misquoted it, but that's what it looks like. someone's leaving themselves wiggle room. Yeah, that's possible as well. Uh, But we can expect to see uh, them, if anybody opts to run the Goodyear tires, beginning at the Silverstone weekend, which is the first round of next season uh, in late August. From all the information we've gathered, although it's not confirmed yet, They'll be replacing their parent company, Dunlop. Or wait, is it? They own Dunlop or Dunlop owns them? Yeah, I think Dunlop. They, Dunlop. Yeah, Dunlop owns them um, in nope. the series. No. Ops. Ops Good gear Olympic brand. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, and then last thing on that note is that Radio Lamont has reported that Dunlop will retain his profile in other forms of the sport. Not too sure if that's just sponsorship or uh or well, they're, they're, they're in bt they're in btcc i believe well by the sport does that mean wec specifically or motorcycles? and they're gonna stay in they're gonna stay in motorcycles too i hear so. yeah they're gonna have they're gonna do other things they just won't do this specific thing that Goodyear's taken over yeah I, I don't know i thought they were just mentioned like, in other forms of the sport meaning the world endurance championship but yeah maybe just broader motorsports um mm-hmm. And last thing with this announcement, and probably the uh, the most important all around the table, is that the the Dunlop Bridge will be remaining at Le Mans. So, <laughs> the iconic the iconic bridge that's been there. Well, that was the thing that I was kind of concerned about when we were talking about uh, part of the hypercar regulations that we keep hearing about is that that uh, they could go to a spec tire for that, and I assumed that it was going to be a spec tire across the World Endurance Championship. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore, but uh, I was worried that, like, is the Dunlop Bridge going to become the Michelin Bridge? So I'm kind of glad to hear that that's uh, going to stick around. Yeah, it's it's just too iconic. It's just 
they can't turn that into a billboard that changes colors every 10 minutes the way Formula One would have done it. Which I don't know if you <laughs> noticed that. They're going to call it the Dunlop Bridge for another generation, no matter whose name might get put on it. They they changed like the livery. I don't know if I should call it a livery, but the sort of the, uh, the decaling on that bridge this year. And I don't know if I'm the only one that noticed it, but I don't know. After watching Le Mans for the past 10 or so years and seeing it look one way, I was like, yeah, that looks different. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty minor. Um, and then last thing before we wrap up this episode, right around the, uh, the hour mark, right on target, um, is that Multimatic, the team that's in charge of manufacturing and also assisting in running the Ford GT factory programs, uh, has reopened the potential to continue running the Ford GT in the hands of privateers in both the pro and am classes. Now, it's kind of interesting because the official cutoff for entries in the World Endurance Championship was May 21st. Um, however, it appears, I'd assume, you know, for the betterment, you know, if you can get a Ford GT full-time on the grid, that's, you know, that's everyone's, uh, everyone's gain for the ACO. Uh, but they've reopened, the ACO has reopened the possibility for Multimatic to file for an entry. Uh, so I'm not sure who exactly they'd be looking at, uh, specifically whether Multimatic wants to try to enter their own cars under their own name in the pro class. I know we already mentioned before the episode, it'd be interesting to see if Keating wants to stay in GTM next year full-time, or if they'd like to try to move to IMSA in the GTLM class. I don't know, that seems kind of kind of a stretch to me competing against all the factory teams, but who knows, maybe stateside logistically they'll they'll decide they want to do something like that. Um, but I did find it kind of interesting that for a while they were saying, no, no Ford GT um, privateers full-time next year, and then they sort of said, hey, you know what, hang on, we'll, we'll consider it. <laughs> Is there a buck to be made here? Yeah, I mean... Didn't they do a whole bunch of Ford GTs after they said they were done making Ford GTs? That's they did, yeah. I think they extended up. it to 2022 or something. 21, maybe. Or maybe yeah. it was just 2020. I can't remember. <laughs> well, um, well, here's here's something to consider about Ben Keating. Is that think, think about how competitive his team usually is in IMSA GTD. And we let's be honest... Even though they say there are no official factory teams in GTD, we, we know that's pretty much crap. Uh, <laughs> we know that there are at least two, maybe three, maybe four teams that are absolutely factory funded, absolutely have factory drivers. Uh, and, and his team always is very competitive. And it's not like Ben is well off the pace. It's not like Ben is crashing the car all the time, like some of the other privateer uh, drivers. So... Uh, you know, I, I think if that team wanted to go GTE racing uh, in the pro divisions, whether that be IMSA or whether that be WEC, I think they could do it. Um, it'll be just kind of, like you said, it, I think it's going to come down to logistics. Uh, now, if I were the team manager, I would think that I would want to run IMSA uh, and then do Le Mans because you could probably, I'm sure he would be able to get an entry one way or the other, but who knows? Well, here's the thing is that entry wouldn't, be factory backed would it because ford says that they're I, I mean from everything i've seen ford's pretty much just trying to get out of the gt program so they can focus on something else whether it's like a hypercar, uh dpr car who knows um maybe i'm wrong on that but from everything i've gained it seems like they're trying to get out of the whole factory support uh, aspect of that car so i know the last time we saw a privateer run in in a GTLM stateside was Team Falcon Tire with the Porsche, and they were a factory back team. They had drivers like Wolf Hensler driving for them. So it'd be interesting to see if they did try to go that route, if they'd actually gain Ford factory backing or not. Well, it depends if it would be a Reese situation. I mean, do you consider Reese to be a full factory team? I no, mean, that's but Reese the also doesn't race full time. Well, that's true. That's a good point. I mean, I think they would if they could, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think they would if they could as well. But, you know, the question is, would they be able to retain those drivers? Because those drivers, they they have other duties to fulfill. They're out doing, you know, the Blanc Pen GT3 championship, and they're out doing actual fully Ferrari factory-backed driving. So I feel like that's yeah, part think... of the aspect why they aren't in IMSA full-time anymore. 
I think Giuseppe Risi's team is kind of a in-between sort of situation. I mean, he's so important as a car dealer to Ferrari that they're willing to help him out if he wants to come run Le Mans once a year and help him get an invitation and all that sort of thing. But I don't think his guys are are assigned in the way that factory drivers normally are. I think he just pays guys like, you know, Tony Vland or whoever. I don't even know who's driving. Uh, in that uh, I've got it right in front of me. Pico Durani, Durani, Olivier Jarvis, Jarvis, and Jules Guillaume. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't think I don't, any of those guys are Ferrari guys. I Certainly, think Jules Jarvis. is a Bentley guy now. Yeah, so you know that's a that's just a very high quality team put together by a by a, a terrific guy. Giuseppe Risi is a great guy. I think you know if you're going to point to a Ferrari team as being the factory team, it would be. Uh, and Ferrari does not typically have factory sports car teams, but uh, the AF Corsa squad with James Collado and Sam Bird, those guys are factory Ferrari guys and. Miguel Molina and so on. Daniel Serra, I think they're more of what you think of as a traditional factory team. Well, but, I was just well, about to say that. That's why you don't see any factory Ferrari drivers in the Risi, the Risi entry at Le Mans, because they're all racing for AF Corsa. Right. Well, Fischichella got uh, got uh, shipped off to Spirit of Race, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> well, it's run by AF Corsa, but uh, he's in the AM category. Yeah. Well, and you know, and Fischichella is a Ferrari guy, so. You know, that may have been well, along the lines of what Porsche does. You know, if you're a good customer. You've got a, a properly resourced team and you're going, OK, we'll give you one of our factory guys to help, you know, <laughs> lower your average lap time <laughs> or whatever justification they use. You know, another point I wanted to raise about this year's uh, Le Mans, if I can. Uh, I'm a big fan of history. That's one of the elements of great racing that really appeals to me. And looking at the history I don't think we've ever had a year with as many important anniversaries, certainly for an American audience, than this year. I mean, it's the 70th anniversary of Luigi Canetti being the first American driver, naturalized American. He also won in 34 as an Italian, but he won in 1949 as an American driving with Lord Selsden. So if you ever want to win a bet in a bar by who was the first American to win Le Mans and everybody else goes with Phil Hill, was actually Luigi Canetti, who became the Ferrari importer and started the North American racing team and so much more. It's the 60th anniversary of the 1959 win for Carroll Shelby, who promptly retired. He and uh, Roy Salvadori provided the only win thus far for Aston Martin. 1969, Jackie Ickes and Jackie Oliver took the last of Ford's four wins in a row overall with their GT40 line of cars. That was also the first year that a chassis, a specific car, won the race in back-to-back -back years. Chassis 1075 in the GT40 line. 1979, Klaus Ludwig and the Whittington brothers had what was maybe the biggest privateer upset of all time in a Porsche. 1989, Mercedes-Benz won the overall for the first time since they left the sport after the Le Mans disaster of 1955. As Jochen Moss, Stanley Dickens, Emmanuel Reuter took the overall. 1999, BMW took their one and only victory overall with uh, Pierluigi Martini, Yannick Dalmas, and uh, Joe Winkelhock. And uh, it's been 10 years since Peugeot broke up an otherwise unbroken string of Audi successes, including the end of nine straight, I think, for Audi when they won with Matthew Brabham, Mark Genet, and Alex Wirtz. So there's a lot of, of nice, roundly numbered anniversaries being celebrated this year at Le Mans. Well, you had, it wasn't nine straight because you had Bentley, but well, <laughs> Bentley in 03. But, that, that you know, however you want to take it. There was an Audi engine in the back of it. However you want to take it. <laughs> yeah. I would just like to point out that uh, if there is someone from Motor Trend watching right now, uh, hire Bob Varsha <laughs> because that that was a. I hope you did that off the top of your head because that was pretty incredible. If that, well, pretty close, I, that was a pretty Kevin moment right there. Listen, chassis numbers <laughs> and everything. I was like, yeah, oh that God, was great. I mean, when there. the chassis when the chassis numbers come out, you know that that's a knowledgeable uh, string of information there. Well, that that's actually what started me thinking about it because that chassis is a particular favorite of mine. I almost wrote a little book about it. Uh, not too many years ago. It's a it's a fascinating story. You know, it was the second win for that car. The previous year, it had had two different drivers in it because Jackie uh, Ix was supposed to drive it with Brian Redmond. They both broke bones in Formula One cars, so they weren't available. 
So they put Lucian Bianchi and Pedro Rodriguez in the car. And that year, the race was run in September instead of June because there was civil unrest in France at the time. So the car not only won back-to-back Le Mans, it did it in a nine-month stretch with two different driver crews. It's a great story. Damn. Wow. I, uh, that's something I did not know. I yeah. did not know Le Mans had been run in September. Me either. Yeah. I was like, I thought I knew it all, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> we never know it all. No, oh, I know. Uh, anyway, I think that's enough to, to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, again, I apologize for the slight break. I was like, what, two, three months we had with no episodes, but I do plan on being back, especially with it being summer and uh, Kyle and myself uh, being... I'm being working on an IndyCar guest right now. Relieved of, of school stuff. But yeah, we got some stuff lined up for the future, so uh, you probably want to stick around. Um, subscribe to the channel uh, if you're new. Uh, you can check out the podcast on Spotify now. There's a new one, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox, Anchor. Uh, all of them are linked on our Twitter account, at RainRacePodcast. Uh, anyway, from myself, Kyle, uh, and David, I'd like to thank Bob Varsha once again so much for joining us. Um, extremely great input on this episode. So, Bob, thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to help us on this one. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Anytime. You, uh, you're obviously passionate, well-informed. And uh, and you correct me when I make mistakes, so I can't ask anything more. Yeah. From myself, Kyle, David, and Kevin, who's not here, we hope to see you in the next episode.